Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. So, as Keith said, we're continuing our series now, Jesus and the Women of Faith. This is our second week where we're looking at Jesus' interactions with women in the Gospels. And as I said last week, the fact that I can do a series on this topic is significant in itself. Because in those days, it was generally considered inappropriate for men to speak to women in public if they were not related to them. And uh, it was especially considered inappropriate for a rabbi to speak to women in public because a rabbi's job was to teach the scriptures. And the general opinion then was that learning the scriptures should be the domain of men. Uh, The Jerusalem Talmud, which was a collection of the rabbi's writings, said, a woman's wisdom should be in the spindle, meaning she should know about things like sewing, but knowing about the scriptures, that's not really for her, okay? But Jesus was a different kind of rabbi. Jesus challenged uh, the social conventions of his time, and one great example of that is the passage that we're looking at this morning. This is what's known as the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, It's in John 4, and we're going to be spending the whole uh, morning in that passage. It's a lengthy one, uh, so if you want to follow along, I encourage you to turn there now. And this is the longest dialogue that Jesus has with anyone in the whole Bible, and it's with a woman. And not only is it with a woman, uh, it's with a woman in public, and not only is it with a woman in public, Uh, It's with a woman who is a Samaritan woman, not a Jew. And Jews despise Samaritans. And not only is it with a Samaritan woman, the conversation is actually about theology. It's about scripture. It's about prophecy. So this this would have been startling. So this image here, uh, this is an icon of the story. And uh, notice how the disciples are looking in the distance. John tells us that when this conversation happened, they had gone off to go look for food. And you can see that they look a little uncomfortable. They're probably saying something like, doesn't he realize how bad this looks? Talking to a woman at a well? I mean, Isaac found his wife at a well. Jacob found his wife at a well. Doesn't he realize this is, uh, this is scandalous? Should we say something to him? What should we do? What Jesus was doing would have invited judgment on him. And he knew that, but he did it anyway. So, let's read the story. Uh, John 4, starting in verse 3. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, going through Samaria was something that pious Jews would have avoided. Jews had a special disdain for Samaritans because Samaritans claimed to be the ones who practiced the true religion. And they said that the Jews had gone astray. So they claimed to worship the same God as the Jews, but they had a different take on a few things. And one of the, the disagreements they had was over where the right place was to worship. The Jews said Jerusalem, and uh, the Samaritans said Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritans saw themselves as the small, faithful remnant of true believers. And the Israelites saw them as a wayward cult. And that tension between the two of them led to real conflict and hostility. In fact, about 200 years before this, the Jewish king had attacked the temple on Mount Gerizim and destroyed it, left it in ruins. And it was still in ruins when Jesus was having this conversation with this woman. And when Jesus was just a child, some Samaritans at night went to the Jerusalem temple, broke into it, and left human bones all over the temple, which was an act of profound desecration, which only helped to deepen the hostility between these two groups. So this is why Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan would have been so shocking to his original audience, right? Because Good Samaritan, there are no Good Samaritans. We don't like the Samaritans. But despite all of this bad blood, Jesus chooses to go through Samaria. And on his way through Samaria, he gets tired, and so he sits down at a well. And not just any well, this is Jacob's well. If you know the history of Israel, right? It goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who are the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then somewhere down that family tree, we get the Samaritans. So it, it's, uh, it's kind of profound, right? That this is the well that watered and nourished the descendants of both Jesus and this woman. They're on opposite sides of a family rift. And now they're about to come together at that place where life first was given, right, to their descendants. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So the woman does not bother to hide her surprise that what Jesus is doing is out of line. Right? You're How can you talk to me, a woman, a Samaritan woman? You're not supposed to talk to me. You're not supposed to ask me for a drink. You Jews would regard my, my, uh, my water vessel as unclean in itself. You, you don't want to take a drink from that, right? And Jesus' answer is, hey, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be worried about social norms. If you knew who I really was, 
you would ask for the water of life, and I would give it to you. And of course, Jesus isn't talking about literal water here. He's talking about water for our souls, the Holy Spirit. But the woman thinks that Jesus is speaking literally. That often happens, especially in the Gospel of John. Jesus says something that's figurative, people take him literally. So she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw from, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So when the woman says that she wants the water that Jesus has to offer, Jesus asks a question that makes the conversation get personal. And since the conversation gets more personal here, I think now is a good time to start calling the Samaritan woman something other than just the Samaritan woman. Uh, the Bible doesn't record a name for her, but the Eastern Orthodox branch of the church calls her Fotini. Uh, the Eastern tradition says that the apostles gave her this name after baptizing her, and Fotini means enlightened one. So that's what I'm going to call her from now on, Fotini. And um, so this is one version of an icon of Fotini. And uh, we also have here uh, an icon produced by our very own Lori Bell, over there. Um, she has hung downstairs uh, a series of icons that she made um, of women who were evangelists. And you can take a look at those downstairs. They're, they're really beautiful. Um, but I was happy. She told me that she had an icon of the uh, Samaritan woman. And uh, I was excited to see that she does have on here Fotini uh, as her name. So you can see she's carrying, she's holding her water jug, right? Um, so that's what we're going to call her, Fotini Enlightened One. And Fotini says that she wants this living water that Jesus possesses. This water that is better than the water from Jacob's well. This water that you can drink and never go thirsty. And Jesus' response is, call your husband and come back. Now, why would he ask that question? Or why would he say that, call your husband? It's not because he thinks she has a husband, right? We're going to find out in a moment that he knows that she doesn't have a husband. So why say, call your husband? Well, I think that what Jesus is doing here is he's creating an opportunity for, for, he's creating an opportunity for Fotini to open up about pain in her life. And more specifically, um, to open up about experiences of rejection and loss. 
The word husband is an uncomfortable one for her. And I think that's why Jesus says it, right? He wants her to know that he's aware of her pain, and he wants her to know that what he is offering can help alleviate that pain. For most of my life, the interpretation that I've heard of this passage is that Fotini has a problem with promiscuity, with sexual sin. And uh, this interpretation says that she's jumped from one husband to another, um, she's got issues with commitment and fidelity. And at this point, you know, she's not even bothering to get married anymore. She's just living with whatever man she's with, you know, at this point. But she's not married to him. And so this interpretation says that she's trying to find satisfaction in life through one intimate relationship after another. And this is probably why she goes to the well at the hottest time of the day, at noon, when nobody else is around. Normally, the women would go to draw water in the early hours before it gets really hot, but she goes there alone uh, in the heat. But I'm not convinced of this interpretation. Now, it's important to recognize there are times in Scripture where Jesus shows mercy to those who are guilty of sexual sin. Absolutely. That happens. Sexual sin is definitely not beyond the grace of God. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. So I'll, let me explain why. In those days, women did not have the right to end a divorce or to end a marriage. They could not initiate a divorce. Only men could initiate a divorce. So if Fotini has been married five times and divorced five times, because of promiscuity, that means that five times she had husbands who recognized that she was unfaithful, and then who chose to divorce her. And I think this is extremely unlikely situation for two reasons. First, because in those days, marrying a known adulteress, a woman who had cheated on her husband, brought shame on the man who married her and on his family. So men usually didn't want to do it. So if Fotini's problem is promiscuity, that means not only did she you know, cheat on her husband once and then manage to find a man who was willing to bring that stigma on her family, on his family, she found four different men who were willing to do that. And each time, there would have been an increasing level of social stigma attached to marrying her, right? So that's unlikely. And then this is also unlikely because women wanted to be married for financial reasons. In those days, if you were a woman and you were not married, if you, if you didn't have a husband or a male relative who was willing to take care of you, you were gonna have a really hard time supporting yourself. And so it would be very unlikely that a woman would over and over again sabotage her marriage and her chance of being legally married again in that culture. So for both of these reasons, I think that the promiscuity interpretation is unlikely. What is more likely is a couple of possibilities. So one is that all five of Fotini's husbands died. Now, that might seem unlikely, but in those days, I mean, life could be difficult and short, right? So that is entirely possible. 
The other possible scenario is that all of her husbands rejected her. Remember, the husbands could initiate a divorce. The women couldn't. And in those days, men could be quick to divorce their wives. And one evidence we have of that is there's this moment in Matthew's Gospel where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, um, is it okay for men to divorce their husbands or for men to divorce their wives for any and every reason? For any and every reason, right? So this is considered a legitimate question. So it's entirely possible that every one of Fotini's husbands said to her, Fotini, we're through. Here's a certificate of divorce. And if that happened, the most likely reason would be because of infertility. Because, of course, men would want to continue their family lines. And so if their wives were not bearing children, they would feel like they had a right to divorce them. The other possible scenario is that some of her husbands died and some rejected her. But either way, Fotini has had a hard life. She's had a life of repeated rejection or loss or both. And at this point in her life, she seems to be living with a man who's taken pity on her, maybe a, a relative, maybe an elderly man who's just doesn't want her to starve. But this man is not her husband. She doesn't have a husband. So Jesus wants Fotini to know that he knows about this pain in her life. He knows that she suffered terrible disappointment. He knows that life has left her longing for more, that she's spiritually thirsty. When people tend to think that Fotini comes to the well alone because of this social stigma, um, because the other women in the community don't want to be around this promiscuous women. But if that's the case, why does everyone trust her later when she shares her story? That doesn't fit. So I think it's more likely that Fotini goes to the well alone because she doesn't want to be around the other women, hearing them talk about their families and their kids and their husbands. It's too painful. Sometimes when you're depressed, you prefer to be alone. So let's keep reading. Fotini responds, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So it seems like Fotini isn't quite ready to really open up about her pain. Um, she seems like she got a little uncomfortable with how personal the conversation was getting, so she changes the subject to theology, which is a move that religious people love to do. So Votini recognizes that Jesus is a prophet. There's no way that he can know these details about her life without having a special connection with God. So she uses this opportunity to bring up one of the questions that divided Jews and Samaritans, which is, where are we supposed to worship? Supposed to worship here in Jerusalem or in Jerusalem or here on Mount Gerizim? What's, what's the right place? What do you say? 
Jesus responds, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So Jesus answers Fotini's question in an unexpected way, a surprising way. Now, he is clear that he's not a religious relativist, right? Meaning he doesn't think that Judaism and Samaritanism are equally valid uh, religions. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. So Jesus recognizes Judaism as superior in its knowledge of God. But notice what he adds immediately afterward. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice he doesn't say, for salvation is only for the Jews. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. Meaning that what God is doing through the, the Jewish people it is not just for their sake, but for the whole world. The salvation comes from them. Salvation is from the Jews because... Jesus is a Jew, and he is the savior of the world, not only of the Jews. So what about the question, where's the right place to worship? Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? If the Jews are the ones who worship God uh, accurately, truthfully, then it must be Jerusalem, right? Well, not quite. Jesus says that the time has come when that question doesn't matter anymore. Because the kind of worship that God seeks is not worship from a particular location, but worship of a particular quality, in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean, worship in spirit and in truth? Well, to worship God in truth is to worship God for who he truly is. Right? Not a false conception of God, but an accurate one, a true one. Now, there's a couple ways of understanding worship in the spirit, but certainly part of what it means is to worship God with our whole hearts. Spirited worship. Real worship, the kind of worship that God really wants, is not focused on where you worship or what day you worship on, you know, Saturday or Sunday, people fight about that sort of thing, right? It's not about what kind of music you use or whether you're wearing a suit and tie. The real worship God is concerned about, it's, it's about an authentic expression of love for him. It's about an interior orientation of our hearts. Now, when some people hear that what God really wants is worship in the Spirit... They think that means that God wants us to be really emotionally expressive in worship. You know, that, that what he really wants is for us to shout and raise our hands and, and that sort of thing. 
And if we're not doing those things, then you know, we, we must not really be giving God what he wants. He must be disappointed. But I would say that's not really a healthy way of understanding what Jesus is saying here. Now, don't get me wrong. I love when people are expressive in worship. I encourage that. Uh, for some people, that's how their love for God really expresses itself naturally. That is an authentic expression of the heart. It flows easily for them uh, to uh, express that way. <clears throat> but for other people, a genuine expression of their love for God is more reserved, it's quieter, it's more contemplative, and that's okay, right? Because worshiping in the Spirit is about the attitude of our hearts, not the intensity of our expression. So the attitude of our hearts, not the intensity of our expression. Someone can be very outwardly expressive in worship, but have a heart that's far from God. And someone can be very reserved and have a deep love for the Lord. What Jesus is talking about here is something deeper than how loud someone is in worship. So worshiping in spirit and in truth is love for God, for who God truly is. People who love God for who God truly is. These are the kind of worshipers that God seeks. So let's finish the story. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? So in other words, they're uncomfortable with the situation, but they didn't confront the woman or Jesus about it, right? They, they didn't say to the woman, why are you talking to our rabbi? What do you want from him? And they didn't say to Jesus, rabbi, what, why are you speaking to her, right? They chose to keep their mouths shut even though they were uncomfortable. Good choice. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him, toward Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then if you're following along in your Bible, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So Fotini has the honor of being one of the first evangelists. Definitely the first evangelist to the Samaritans. Some people even call her the mother of evangelists. And through her testimony, many Samaritans came to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So this is a beautiful picture of what the Bible teaches repeatedly, which is that God exalts the humble. He lifts up the humble. 
God invites those who have been rejected, disappointed, marginalized into places of honor. This is how he works. Now, before we finish up, I'm almost done. I want to talk a little bit about these references to food. There's a couple of them, and I think there's a significance there that's easy for us to miss. When the disciples return, they say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Okay, remember, they had the reason that Jesus was alone with the Samaritan woman was because the disciples had left. They had gone to a town to buy food. And one commentary I read said that the reason that they probably left to go find food is because they didn't want Samaritan food, right? Because Samaritan food could be unclean. But when they come back with food and they say to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, eat some food, Jesus doesn't take the food, right? He says, I have food, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So why does Jesus say that? I think that Jesus is being clever, as he often is. And I think what he's saying has both a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. Now, he tells us what the figurative meaning is, right? He says, uh, my food is to do the work of him who sent me and to finish his work. Or my, it's to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. But I think there's a literal meaning, too. Because when he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, there are Samaritans who are coming towards him right now. And what are those Samaritans going to do? They're going to invite him to stay with them for two days. And don't you think food was part of the equation there? They were going to eat with Jesus? The food that Jesus has to eat, which the disciples know nothing about, is the food that's offered by the Samaritans. Jesus is about to share a table with these despised people. And he will do that because his true food is to do God's will. That is what nourishes Jesus more than anything else, doing God's will. And God's will is for Samaritans to join in the kingdom of God. God's will is for salvation to go from the Jews to the ends of the earth. God's will is to build a kingdom of people from every tribe, nation, and language. God's will is to exalt lowly people like Fotini. God's will is to offer the water of life to those carrying deep pain from rejection, loss, and disappointment. God's will is to give hope to those who have been beaten down by the world. So this story gives us a picture of what it looks like when worshiping in spirit and in truth is happening. Okay, it doesn't just look like people singing loudly, although it can. It looks like people who would ordinarily hate each other coming together around Jesus and sharing a table together. It looks like the walls of hostility between men and women in different ethnic groups collapsing. It looks like people with different views on politics, different personalities, uh, different ages, coming together, uniting around the grace of God that's been given in Jesus. So may our worship look like that. Worship in spirit and in truth. Amen? Lord, we do pray that you give us 
a greater understanding of what it means to worship in spirit and truth, and we pray that we would embody it. Lord, we thank you that you offer us living water, the water of life that can bring satisfaction and peace and hope after great disappointment, after we've been beaten down by the world. Lord, help us to experience that hope, that life today. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.